relate to. And what you have here over these next few chapters and the previous chapters, you see an honest portrayal of the life of Jacob. Now, Jacob had a name change here recently where the Lord said he's going to start calling him Israel because Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you see the Lord really growing Jacob into this man that he wants him to be. But what you have here in Genesis 33 is really this last chapter that deals with the situation with Esau and Jacob. And if you remember the story with Esau and Jacob, Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. It was Esau's. Jacob stole that. Jacob's name means deceitful. He was deceitful. He took the birthright. Well, Jacob and Esau are finally meeting after 20 years, and Jacob's pretty sure that Esau's still mad and wants to kill him. What you have here in Genesis 33 is their meeting and the peace that comes out of it. Now, this is a pretty straightforward chapter. There's really not a lot of deep theological things in it, but there's two main points I want to bring out of this as we go through it, and we'll get to those. But what we have here right at the beginning is Jacob and Esau meeting for the first time in 20 years. The last time they were together, Esau wanted to kill Jacob, but Jacob fled for his life. So let's see what happens. Verse 1, Genesis 33, Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, this is what Jacob does. He thinks Esau's coming to kill him. So he takes his family and he puts them in layers. He puts the maidservants up front. He had four wives, if you remember correctly. So he puts his least two favorite wives up front and their kids. And then he puts Leah, would be his second favorite wife, third. Then he puts his favorite wife and his favorite son, Joseph and Rachel, all the way at the back. That's what he did. There's an honesty there. So he's got his kids and family divided by how much he likes them. The least favorites are up front. So that way if Esau attacks, if you remember correctly from our study last week, he basically says, listen, if Esau attacks, at least some of you can escape. I won't lose you all. Now you can either stop and say, wow, divine wisdom and guidance, or you can stop and say this is a man of the flesh. I lean towards the second one. I think this is a fleshly response of fear. And if you were with us last week in Genesis 32, all those phrases of fear, Jacob is walking in fear. He has moments of, Lord, I trust you. He has moments of, God, you're going to get me through this, followed immediately by fear. And don't we do the same thing? We have this moment of prayer and peace, and the heavens open up, and God, you're amazing, you're great, I trust you completely. Followed by five minutes later, you're completely freaking out about something. And we talked about last week how really fear is the absence of faith. Fear is not trusting the Lord. Jacob has moments like that. So 20 years have passed. Now he's trying to fix it. Verse 3, he crosses over first. I give Jacob credit. He leads them. He goes over first. He bows himself to the ground seven times. This is showing submission. He's basically saying to Esau, I'm submitting myself to you. Now... Here's the point, and we mentioned this last week, and I don't want to repeat the whole point. This is a great attempt at making peace. It should have been done 20 years ago. This could have been totally different. Last week, we mentioned Matthew 5, verse 25, where it says, If somebody has something against you, go to them and go to them quickly and make peace. We have a tendency a lot of times as Christians to not seek out peace. And we allow ourselves to walk in division. We allow ourselves to walk with anger. Maybe we're holding a grudge against someone or someone's holding a grudge against us and we're okay with that. Well, if Jacob would have dealt with this 20 years earlier, we wouldn't be in this position right now. I felt bad. There was somebody that contacted me recently and they were making a comment about there was a problem happened. They made a bad choice, made some mistakes. What do I do now? I said, well, I wish we could go back in time. That's what we should have done. What do you do now? You go to them and tell them you're sorry. I mean, that's about all we can do sometimes. 
Jacob, 20 years. What does he do now? I'll go bow myself down to him, submit myself to him, and basically hope for mercy. What happens? Verse 4. Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, These the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and they bowed down. So now these waves of kids and wives come up, and they all show respect. Verse 7. And Lisa also came near, excuse me, and Leah also came near with her children. They bowed down after Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? If you remember last week, the way Jacob was trying to appease Esau is he sent wave after wave after wave of animals and gifts. So basically, he thought Esau was coming to kill him. He had 400 men with him. So he sent this huge group of gifts of animals and stuff. And so when Esau would meet him, he would say, what are these? He would say, well, these are gifts given to you by Jacob. So then Esau would go a little bit while longer. Then he would see another wave of gifts coming. And this is his way of trying to appease him. So Esau is now basically saying, what's with all the gifts? Verse 8. These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, and as much as I have seen your face, as though I have seen the face of God, and you are pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him and took it. Now, I think this is kind of important here. And i got two slides I want to show you here real quick. Zach, can you put the second slide up? Not the map one, but the other one. Next one, please. This phrasing enough really hit me. Now, depending on your translations, here's the first point I want to say. Some of your translations may say in verse 9 that he had plenty. Some of your translations may say in verse 11 that I have all that I need. My new King James, King James, both translates the word enough. Now, I found this interesting because they're completely different words. This is the problem with the English language. Is we say things like this. Esau, I have enough. Jacob, I have enough. They're completely different words words, though. We use this joke a lot about the word love. We throw the word love out in the English language all the time. I love my wife. I love my dog. I love chicken McNuggets. We love them. It means something different, I would hope. So what's it mean that he has enough? Esau is saying in verse 9, I have enough. That word is a Hebrew word that means many, much, plenty. Esau is saying, I have plenty of things. I have plenty of things. Look at verse 11. Jacob says, please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. That phrase means I have all. It's a totally different word. Look at the difference here. Esau is a man of the flesh. What he's saying is I have lots of things. I have plenty. Jacob is actually saying in verse 11, because God has dealt graciously with me, verse 11, I have everything I need. It's a completely different statement. Completely different statement. And you may be saying, aren't you kind of making a big point out of this? No. No, because this is what we have to talk about. Do you have everything you need? See, what Jacob is saying is, because I have the Lord, I have everything I need. I have enough. Esau's just saying, I have a lot of stuff. Go with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. It amazes me as believers, and I see this in my kids' life. I see this in my life. I see this in my family. This idea for always wanting more. More. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Esau, I have plenty of stuff. Jacob, through God, I have everything I need. 1 Timothy 
chapter 6, verse 6. Great passages. This is what I call a fridge verse. Stick this on the fridge. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and as certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. I ask my boys all the time, do you have food in your belly? Yes. you have clothes on your body? Yes. you have a roof over your head? Yes. Then you have everything you need. Now, we know that. But yet, then I find myself on the internet looking stuff up saying, boy, it would be nice to have that, wouldn't it? My boys know the idea of contentment, and they know the idea of how blessed they are. If you come into our house, they're blessed, just like all of us. We have lots of stuff. I heard a pastor say one time, America is the only nation that has to build buildings outside of their house to hold their stuff. We have so much stuff, we can't even keep it in our house. So now we have to have buildings outside of our house to hold the stuff that we can't fit in our house. That's how much stuff we have. And I see a selfishness in, in my family, just like every family. My boys, you know, they have their own little wallets. They have their own little money. So that way there's no question whatsoever of how much money do you have. That when they go to Walmart, one of their favorite things to do is they go shopping and they get their own little receipt and their own little bag, etc. So we went last night to get groceries. And I said, before we left, I said, nobody but mom is going into Walmart. Nobody. So Kenan, our fourth one, he comes up to me and goes, but dad, I have a dollar. I said, what do you want to buy? He goes, I don't know. I just want to go look. Just that, I have a dollar. And, you know, just like with some of your children, I have one kid that's a saver. I have one kid that would spend every penny. And I know Kenan, he has a dollar. He will search that store and find something for a dollar. He'd probably buy a Bic lighter if he could. It's a dollar, Dad. Just I want to buy something. And I don't know how many times I tell them, you don't have to buy something. You just don't, you don't have to. But you know what? We see that in a four-year-old, a six-year-old. We laugh and joke about it. It's not funny when it's a 40-year-old or a 60-year-old. They still have the same problem. I tell you, there's a lot of truth in these verses. Read them one more time. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, and as certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Now, usually we say the word content is a dirty word. Never be content in your relationship with Christ. Always want more in your marriage, in your life, and walk with the Lord. In this context, content is a good word. I'm content. I'm content with what God has blessed me. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall in temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts. Have you ever seen somebody It's like, why did you buy that? They're making payments forever. I've shared this story with you before that a few years ago, Don and I were looking into getting a camper. And we just wanted, you know, we love camping. And so I called this guy up and he had a camper. And I asked him how much the camper was. And he wouldn't give me the price. This is what he said. He says, how's this sound for you? How's this sound? I'll let you have this camper. It was a beautiful camper. He goes, I'll let you have this camper. 170 bucks. 170 bucks a month. Now, I'm, I'm pretty good at math. I went to school for finance. I had my financial calculator. I filled it out. It was 170 bucks a month for the next 10 years. Well, of course it sounded good. And if I knew Jesus was returning next week, I'd go buy a huge camper right now. And I would go camping. But if I don't know Jesus is returning, I have to make wise investments with my money. For the next 10 years? No, that's not a good idea. But you know what? That sounds good. 170 bucks a month. That's not bad for 10 years. We get into harmful and foolish lust, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And you've heard this said many times before. Money is not the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. I've met people that are by the world standards wealthy. 
And it doesn't bother them at all. I mean, it doesn't affect them. It doesn't bring them down. They use that money to see the gospel spread. I've run into people in this world that are dirt poor, and they're the most selfish people I've ever met in my life. It's not how much money you have, it's what you think about it. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves with through many sorrows. Boy, money can get you into a lot of problems. It really can. And what I'm trying to make my point here is with Esau and Jacob. This is a completely different phrasing. Esau is saying, I got a lot of stuff. Jacob is saying, I have everything I need because God has graciously given it to me. It's a completely different perspective. It's a completely different mindset. We see in Jacob this molding now into becoming this man of God. And it's a pretty neat thing to see. So before we move on, I'm making a quick questions comments here about the first part of this. They're meeting, the peace that they make with each other. And just this quick little point here on the I have enough before we move on. Okay, so what happens next? Let's see. Verse 12, Esau said, let us take our journey, let us go, and I will go before you. Esau says, hey, good to see you, let's travel together. Verse 13, Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me, and if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go ahead before a servant, I will lead on slowly at a place, pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until... I come to my Lord in Sierra. Jacob says, hey, you start out. I'm going slow. I'll catch up to you. Verse 15, Esau said, now let my people leave with you some. The people are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sierra. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Can you please go ahead and put that map up there real quick, Zach? What you see here in verse 17, that word actually means booths. Just a quick map that you can kind of see there. You see where it is in Succoth up there. So that's where he's at. Leave this map up because we're going to talk about this here in a little bit. Here's the point. Esau says, let's go together. Jacob says, sure, I'll meet you in the land of Seir. Jacob goes the opposite direction. Still deceitful. I don't know, was he afraid that Esau was just faking this? Was he afraid of what was going to happen? I don't know. What gets really awkward here, in a couple chapters, when their dad dies, they meet together for the funeral. Now, the Bible doesn't say what they talked about, but if I was Esau, my first question was, hey, what happened? If I leave the church here and somebody's going to follow me, and if I say, hey, I'm heading to Toledo, and they say, hey, go ahead without us. I'll meet you up there in a little bit. We're going to take off in a little bit. And I never see them. I'm going to start calling and saying, what happened? Jacob went the opposite way, and he stopped in verse 17. He plants himself here, and he just doesn't plant himself. Verse 17, he builds himself a house. It's important that the word says it's a house. Jacob is making settlement here. He's making now barns for his livestock. And he stops and he stays here. Now, real quick, verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, which he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land which he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamar, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. Now, here's my point that I'm trying to make. We have to put this all together now. Look at your map. He first stopped over there in Sukkoth. And so what happens now is he crosses the river and he goes to Shechem. You can see it right across the river there. Now, that's good. That's where the Lord wants him to be. Shechem is at the uppermost part of the promised land. Now, here's the problem, though. Keep your hand here in Genesis 33. Just jump back real quick. Genesis 31. Genesis 31. Look at verse 13 in Genesis 31. 
Genesis 31, verse 13, God told Jacob, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now rise, get out of this land and return the land of your family. So that's his marching orders. Jacob doesn't do that. Look here in Genesis 35, verse 1. Genesis 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of your Esau brother. So those are the bookends, okay? Just follow along with me as we, as we build this point. Genesis 31. Leave your uncle, leave your father-in-law, go back to the land where I've called you from. Looks like I'm calling you to Bethel. Genesis 35. I'm reminding you again, go to Bethel. So, in between 31 and 35, Jacob disobeys. First thing he does is go to this place of Sukkoth there. That's not where he's supposed to be. That's not even in the promised land. So finally, he crosses the river and goes to Shechem. Shechem is just in. It's at the northern area of the promised land. It reminds me if I tell my kids, hey, stay on this side of the house. So they stay on this side of the house, but they will get so far to the edge that I'm basically seeing their elbow stick out. You can still see me. I'm still technically in the backyard. I still haven't gone to the front of the house, but I am so close to that line. I'm obeying, but where's my heart? And you may say, what's the big deal? God told him in Genesis 31, go to Bethel. He didn't listen right away. Genesis 35, you know, he was supposed to go to Bethel. You know what the big deal is? Genesis 34. Look at Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Dinah, the only gal mentioned, 11 brothers. I don't blame her. Want some godly fellowship with other gals? Let's go see the gals of the land. Verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her, lay with her, and violated her. Dinah goes out. The prince of the land says, like her, won her, takes her, rapes her. Verse 3. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. Now, verse 3. I, I, am not, I promise you I'm not trying to make a joke. Verse 3 is just a very creepy verse. It's this guy that basically says, I love you so much that that's why I did those things to you. You would hate to think this, but you know, this thing still happens thousands of years later. This is not love. Anytime I talk about love, I always think of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love builds up. This guy in verse 3, that he was strongly attracted to her, he's obsessed with her, he raped her, and basically now he's captured her, and now verse 3, he's speaking to her tenderly, kindly, and saying, I now want you to be with me. This is awful. Verse 4, Shechem spoke to his father, Hamar, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. Verse 5, Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah's daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry because he'd done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Eleven brothers. And the girl is now raped, violated, and basically held hostage. Verse 8, Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves, so you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Basically, let's just intermingle. Same thing still happens today in the world, right? Let's just intermingle. It's not a really big deal, right, if your believing child wants to just date a non-believing child. It's really not a big deal, right? We start intermingling. Okay, you, you 
have completely different standards and morals. And every time I teach this, I usually somebody gets their feathers ruffled. And I'm not really trying to ruffle anybody's feathers because I think Corinthians makes it pretty clear about don't be unequally yoked. But what happens is this. If you as a believer want to be involved with a non-believer, which you're basically saying, my father is God in heaven and your father is Satan. So basically in-laws are going to be a problem here. That's the way it's going to be. Because spiritually speaking, marrying a non-believer, they're of their father of the devil. Now that's not attacking them, it's not putting them down, that's stating a fact that they have chosen to reject Christ. Years ago I had a couple that came out here and they wanted to get married, and one of them was a very strong Christian, the other one was a very strong atheist. I said, how do you think this is going to work? And I ended up telling them, I said, I can't marry you guys. And I remember asking the Christian, saying, doesn't it bother you that you're committing your life to this person? If they would die, they're going to hell. And I said, I'm not putting this person down. I'm saying, how are you supposed to have this spiritual oneness and relationship? It doesn't work. Now, I know people that have gotten married and they were a believer and non-believer. And thank the Lord, the non-believer got saved eventually. Amen to that. And I'm not trying to make a joke. I know people have jumped off the roof and didn't get a broken foot. Just because it worked out for one doesn't mean it was still sometimes the best choices to make. Thank the Lord that he works good in all things. But you see this intermingling, intermingling here happening. And yes, some of you may have been involved with the non-believer and the Lord used you to bring them to salvation. And once again, amen. But if we go back to what God said at the beginning, he says we've got to keep ourselves pure. So what you see here is this idea of verse 10, compromise, dwell with us, trade with us, acquire us, let's tr- swap kids. Verse 11, Shechem said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Shechem says, I love your daughter, I love your sister so much, whatever you want, I'll do. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamar's father and spoke deceitfully, because he had defiled Dinah as their daughter, and they said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And the words pleased Hamar and Shechem, Hamar's son. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. Do you catch verse 19? The creepy rapist is more honorable than all the rest of his father's household. Verse 20, And Hamar and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Verse 22, Would you not like to be part of that meeting (laughs) to see how those guys responded? You know, it's probably, you know, listen, guys, this is the catch. We got this really powerful group that came in. Numerous kids, numerous livestock. They're willing to be buddies with us. They're willing to be buddies with us. We just got to do this one thing just get circumcised. Verse 23 Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Verse 23 You get the real picture now. Guys, do this. Intermix with them. All their stuff becomes our stuff. Only let us consent to them and they will, will dwell with us. Guys, just go through this and it's all ours. All who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamar and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of the city came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brother, came, each took a sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. 
And then they killed Hamar and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. This is the honesty of the Bible. Just because this is in here does not mean that God agreed to this or condoned this, accepted this in any way whatsoever. We're going to get to a point about that later. Basically, Simeon and Levi said this. You guys all get circumcised, right? Three days later, when they're all recovering in their pain, they can't even get up off the couch. Simeon and Levi just come in and massacre every single man. Come right in and just kill him. Verse 27, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain, plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth. All their little ones and all their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me, and I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? End chapter. There's no resolution here. No resolution. And we're running out of time, and I've got to make a couple quick points. Jump ahead with me. Jump ahead with me here. I just want to show you how the Lord also does not forget this. Go to Genesis 49. Genesis 49 real quick. At the end of Genesis here, Jacob is dying. He's on his deathbed and he's coming and he's blessing each son individually. Well, Genesis 49, let's see what he says here about Simeon and Levi. Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and their self-will they hamstrung an axe. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So there's a lot of points to make here. A lot of points. And I'm going to just do these kind of quickly. Please don't think I'm uh, skipping over the, this. First off, you reap what you sow. That's a biblical truth. We can sit here and say, look at this town, look at how awful they were, and they got what they deserved. They did get what they deserved. But it's not in our hands to be the judgment of God unless God called us to do that. God did not call Simeon and Levi to do this. Simeon and Levi got what they deserved. They lost the blessing. And you may stop and say, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal. They lost the blessing of what God gave them. If you go through the rest of the blessings there in Genesis 49, basically Jacob looks at Simeon and Levi and says, I didn't forget what you guys did, and I'm not going to bless you guys because of your actions and how you were. It reminds me of the passage in the book of James. When talking about anger and talking about how powerful anger can be, it's such a simple, simple verse. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, I'm going to be a bit sexist here because generally it's men. Sometimes it's women. But when I see a man screaming and yelling and hitting and cussing and punching walls and throwing things, that's not the righteousness of God. That's a carnal, ugly thing. When I see sometimes the wife or maybe the woman, same thing. That's not righteousness of God. But yet in our flesh, it feels good. We feel justified. Look what she did or look what he said. I have every right. It's almost a Simeon and Levi thing. Look at the verse 31 one more time of Genesis 34. Should he treat our sister like a harlot? We're justified. He raped our sister. He imprisoned our sister. We have every right now to go massacre every one of them. Justifiable anger. That's not Christ-like. It's not Christ-like in any way whatsoever. And if we call ourselves Christians, we're held to a different standard on how we react when the world treats us like junk. And too many times I see believers going back to wrath. Wrath is not the righteousness of God. 
My last point I'll say about this, because it's 8 o'clock and um, we got to get going here. The whole point of this, why do we even get to this chapter? Why do we talk about this? Genesis 31. Go back to your home country. I'm the God of Bethel. Genesis 35. Go to Bethel. Where did Jacob go? He didn't go to Bethel. He came to Shechem. If Jacob would have obeyed, this never would have happened. Let me say that one more time. If Jacob would have obeyed, they never would have been in Shechem. If we do not follow or obey what God has told us, when he says go, we don't go. If we says stop, we don't stop. We will put ourselves in situations that will get us and our family in trouble. I don't know how many times I've seen families go downhill when spiritually they're not where they're supposed to be. And then they sit there and they say, God, why is all these awful things happening to us? Well, God called you to go to Bethel and you didn't go. Jacob went where he wanted to go. He went to Shechem. He planted himself in Shechem. And look what happened. It's so important to be obedient, to say, Lord, where have you called us? And to do it and be obedient. God won't give you step B until you complete step A. And we got to remember that. Jacob, if he wouldn't have went to Shechem, it never would have happened. If he would have went to Bethel right away, this never would have happened. But because he made a choice that was not in line with God's will, it's a domino effect. His daughter is hurt and ravaged. His sons are now responding in the flesh. It's an awful, awful mess. Very simply put, because he didn't lead his family the way he was called to lead. So we're running out of time. I don't mean to cut that short there, but it's important to kind of do those two chapters together here real quick. Does anybody have any final questions, comments about anything here before we close up? All righty. Let's, let's go with the word of prayer, and then we'll let you go here. Lord, lots of, that we covered here tonight, and I just want to pray some simple things for us. I just think back to Esau and Jacob. Peace. Peace. 